Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Let me invite you to be seated. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a little bit of an atypical Sunday. This is a fifth Sunday, a fifth Sunday of the month that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on. And we devote sort of our entire time to doing that. We, even, uh, we don't even have our regular Sunday school classes. If After um, I'm done, I invite you, if you have kids two to three, you're welcome to use our uh, child care uh, for that age. But the rest of the kids, we invite you to stay and, and uh, celebrate um, the Lord's Supper with us and with your parents. Um, but again, like I said, this is a fifth Sunday. And rather than myself sort of leading us through a reflection, Chris Hudson, he mentioned a couple weeks ago that he had a sermon when he was 16 years old. That he just felt the need to, one more Sunday, to just catch us up to speed. So... We're looking forward to that. Just a few announcements before he does, though, the anticipation builds. Um, One, Honey Rock, our Honey Rock retreat for our senior high is coming up. There's registration forms in the back. Chris is actually going to be back there after the service. He can walk you through if you have any questions about that. But registration in the back, that's happening at the end of January. So if you're planning on going to that or thinking about going to that, there's information, again, at the back, and we invite you uh, to to take advantage of that. Second, we want to invite you also to consider reading through the Bible with us this year. Uh, Chris is going to be doing this with uh, a few other people, and and we want to extend that invitation to you. If you've never done that before, this is a great year to start. If you have, it's a great year to continue uh, there's information again, though, at the back for that. Chris has a reading plan. He's helpfully um, put together uh, for us to, to use. And um, we'd welcome you again to consider that. Consider reading through God's Word in its entirety this year. Um, not straight through the Bible. It's rearranged a little bit according to uh, chronological order. But we would invite you to consider doing that. And lastly, I want to just bring up again something that we've been mentioning for the last couple weeks. We invited you, um, I think we started inviting you two weeks ago to consider uh, today to, um, as a reflection of um, our celebrating the Lord's Supper together, participate with us, particularly in our benevolence, in our, um, our helping each other in our congregation when those of us um, fall on hard times financially. We want to invite you again today, this is a, as if you're looking for a year-end gift, to invite you to participate in that. You can do that by check if you just write benevolence in the memo and drop that in our, our offering um, boxes in the back. Or you can go online and there's a place to do that as well. Chris is going to come up and read for us and pray for us. But let me pray for Chris before he does. Heavenly Father, I thank you that today on the cusp of a new year, That we have, in a way, an opportunity to start fresh, to put new habits in place, to to change old habits. But most of all, to come back to where we begin in our relationship with you. To come back to the cross, 
to even as we continue to celebrate, in a sense, Christmas today and sing about Christmas today, that we do so now looking forward to the cross particularly. And I ask today that even as Chris leads us in this reflection on the kingships of old, I pray that we would know Jesus as our king today. As we celebrate the the breaking of bread, the pouring out of his blood on our behalf, that we would know him as Lord and Savior, as he is rightfully so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. And uh, Jesse, I did neglect to bring those notes with me today. So I, I forgot those at home, so you'll have to go with the thoughts that I did bring. So hopefully that is okay. Well, we are going to be spending some time in Second Chronicles chapter 33 uh, in shortly. I would invite you, we're going to go through the passage. And it's going to be, um, I think it's a very interesting story. And it's one that will be uh, interesting to you as well. It's easier if you follow along. So if you don't have a Bible and you don't have an app, and you would like to grab a Bible, I will not be offended if you send someone to your party from the back over there to get a Bible from the back and then bring it with you. We're going to be on page 384. Uh, many of you know that for a long time, I actually I, I worked two jobs. I worked in book publishing, and I actually worked in, uh, I coached. I coached for about uh, 20 years. I coached baseball and softball, and I did that at high school and at college level. And uh, the, the coach, while, while publishing paid the mortgage, uh, the uh, coaching was actually a lot of fun. It was, a, it was a job that I really enjoyed. And should I switch mics? We good? All right. Uh, coaching was a job that I, I really enjoyed for all the reasons that you think you might enjoy coaching. It's the stress of the last inning, which decision you're going to make. Um, are people going to be happy with you or not happy with you at the end of the day? Uh, it's a stadium sometimes with, with people in it, spectators. Uh, but before you get to the championships and before you get to the trophies, there's a part of coaching that is distasteful, it's undesirable, and that is setting your roster or making cuts, doing tryouts, and then having to look people in the eye and say, I'm sorry, you're not good enough to be on the team. Early in my coaching career, I was coaching at a, at a high school, and there was a particular young gal who was a, a really sweet Nice, nice young lady, and she loved softball. Unfortunately, she was not talented at softball. And this, they had this awkward moment of, of, what do I do with someone who loves this and wants to do this so badly, yet is not good enough to be on the team? And in fact, not only is she not good enough, if, if she participates and we kept her on the team, there's actually, she could get injured. She, she's, she was just not skilled that this was a safety issue. And so I went to a mentor of mine who was the athletic director. I said, Ed, I said, I've got this Megan on the team. She loves to play. She wants to play. The problem is, is she's not good enough. And she could get hurt if we, if we allow her to be on the team. And as a young coach, I went to my athletic director and I asked him this. And he looked at me and he goes, Megan's a nice girl. I said, yeah, it's not helping. What do I do? He thought for a minute and he, he looked at me and goes, tell her. Tell her God's calling her to work on her piano. And as a young coach, I thought about that. I'm like, that's a perfect answer. You're, invoke, you're bringing God into this. It's, it's, it's affirming other strengths and gifts that she has. And maybe this is my way of, 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 of easing her out of softball and into another, another career. 
And so I, I started toward the door, and all of a sudden it hit me, and I turned to Ed. I said, Ed, does Megan play the piano? And he looks back at me and goes, I don't know. And I said, well, well, what if she doesn't? What if I start going down this way and she doesn't play the piano? And he thinks for a minute, he goes, tell her, tell her God wants her to learn. And so with that advice, I went to the field, and I did tell Megan that God was calling her to other things, that softball was not in her future. I did not invoke the piano, but I knew that God was not going to have her on this team because that decision was up to me. Um, But what made that conversation so agonizing is I have been on the receiving end, on the other side of that table, where you want to be in something, and someone looks at you and says, I'm sorry, you're not good enough to do this. Where sometimes it's a job promotion, it is uh, a part to be on a team, it's trying out for a musical, it's, it's it, it, an opportunity to, sometimes it's even a relationship when you put your best on and you go out on that first date hoping that I'm going to be good enough, only to have that nagging fear of what if I'm not good enough? I remember what it's like to see the, the promotions posted or, or trying out for a musical in high school and going to the bulletin board on the li- uh, that's posted looking for it and, and finding everyone's name but mine. Like, there must be some mistake, and only to find out, no, I'm, I'm not good enough to do this. And that pressure to be good enough is something that certainly seeps into our faith sometimes. Uh, we struggle sometimes to say, you know what, am I good enough for God? Many times, I, I share with, with a number of you, many times when I, was, when I was a teenager, during Communion Sunday, which we'll celebrate at the end of uh, our time in Second Chronicles, uh, struggling with communion because I didn't feel I was good enough to take communion. The, the bread and the cup would come down the aisle, and I knew that everyone else was taking it, but I looked at it and said, I know myself, I know my sins, I know the fight that I just had with my parents, I know the thoughts that I've had this week, everyone else may be good enough, I am not good enough. It would be unworthy of me, a sinner, to take this communion. And for approximately two years, I I sat in church, I attended church, beat up over my sin, and as the communion cup would go by, I'd say, I can't. I'm not good enough. The irony that struck me afterwards, now, is that that's actually the point of communion. We're not good enough. If we were good enough, we wouldn't need communion. If we were good enough, we wouldn't need Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins. The very fact that we're not good enough is why Jesus came to say, you know what, God wants to be in a relationship with you, and there's a sacrifice that takes our sins. And that idea of being good enough is is something at the very core of communion, is that we are not good enough. But thanks be to God, we have a Savior who is, who provided a sacrifice that is good enough, And despite our sins from this week and this month and this last year, we can celebrate communion in a way that says, you know what, I put my trust in a sacrifice that is good enough. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, it's page 384, if you grabbed a Bible from the back. We're going to look at King Manasseh. King Manasseh was the epitome of not being good enough. But we're also going to find that he found that forgiveness is free. And then we're also going to find that there's a place for us as well as we uh, participate in the Lord's table. 
When I was 10 or 11 years old, I received my very first Bible. It was a study Bible. It was like this one. It was a Thompson Chain Reference Bible. And the very first thing I did was I started looking through all the charts and all the pictures in the back, like many of you are probably going to do t- today. You look through for things that are interesting to look at in your Bible. And I found at the back of my Thompson a, a, a graph of the kings of Judah. And it was, uh, some kings were, were deemed righteous, some kingdoms were deemed, it was like a stock market graph, and it just fascinated me that King David was, or Saul started okay, but then he crashed. And then David came, and he was pretty, and then he had a moment, and then he restored himself. Uh, and then uh, there, there was this great King Hezekiah that was just always t- toward the top on this little chart on, on, in the back of my Bible. And then the one that grabbed me was King Manasseh. The son of Hezekiah, who was just all the way up at the top, and then Manasseh came and all the way at the bottom, lived his life at the bottom. And then at the end on the graph, all of a sudden Manasseh was like, ding. And it's just like, what happened? That, 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 that intrigued me as a, as, a, as a kid. And we're going to look at Second, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 33. Go there. We're going to follow, follow along with me. We're going to go through his story. And we're going to find ourselves in the story, I think. We're going to find... Uh, Reminders of our own inability to be good enough. We're going to find that forgiveness is free, and we're going to find a place, hopefully, at the Lord's table together. But follow with me, Second Chronicles 33, and I'll stop at different points along the way as we walk through the story. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Just stop there for a moment right away. Here's Manasseh, 12 years old. Any 12-year-olds here? Became king. And in that time, uh, Manasseh ruled for 55 years. And that actually tells us a lot right there. The fact that Manasseh reigned 55 years. Who reigned longer? Trivia question. Think about it. Who reigned longer? Nobody. David didn't reign longer. Solomon didn't reign longer. Manasseh was the longest reigning king in Judah which tells you that he had to be somewhat successful. You can't be a king in that time period and keep your job and not be uh, assassinated, not have the people rise up against you, unless you are pretty good at keeping order and keeping power. And Manasseh, by all accounts, was probably an effective king. Archaeologists say that during this time period, Israel had built up an olive oil trade and was exporting it, so the economy was good, Manasseh had power, there was stability, there were no invaders, and Manasseh was a successful king in a worldly sense. He reigned for 55 years. If you know the story of the kings, you also know that earthly success is not God's measurement. Follow along in verse 2. And he, Manasseh, did what was evil... In the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. God's evaluation tool, as you know, is very separate. It's different than earthly success. He may have had a good economy. He may have had trusted advisors. He may have had power. He may have had success. But his evaluation in God's eyes was Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, how evil was Manasseh? Let's get into that, verses 3 through 6. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Did you catch what that's saying? You had Hezekiah, his dad, who was a good king. Hezekiah had gone through the nation and gotten rid of all the idols. 
And Manasseh went back and found out where all the idols were used to be, and he put them back. And he put high places up and said, you know what, instead of going to the temple to worship a god you can't see, here's Baal and here's Asheroth, worship them. You can see these idols, worship them. And he transformed the kingdom into an idolatrous kingdom. He took the people that were focused on a one true God that, was, that had a center of worship in Jerusalem and said, now we're going to worship gods everywhere that we can uh, put an idol. It goes on, verse 4. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And, be, and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. It's doing what you think. He went to the temple in Jerusalem where God's name was to be and he removed all the references to the one true God and he said, instead, we're going to worship Baal, we're going to worship Asheroth, we're going to worship all the nations, idols around us and he transformed Solomon's temple into a place of idolatry. Just how evil was Manasseh to say not only did he set up idols around everywhere in the country, he took it even there. But it gets better or worse, I suppose. Verse 6, and he, Manasseh, burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. As if introducing idolatry throughout the country wasn't bad enough, as if introducing idolatry to the Lord's temple wasn't enough, the Bible tells us that Manasseh sacrificed his own sons as an offering to these foreign gods. Child sacrifice. So Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, was so evil that he sacrificed his own sons. He consulted mediums, sorcerers, necromancers, which are people who practice magic involving the dead. Manasseh was so lost, he gave himself completely to the dark arts. He just embodied these things and he spread them into this demonic activity. Jewish tradition and Christian tradition also add this. This is not in the Bible, but the Jewish tradition says that Manasseh also is the one who, who killed, who murdered the prophet Isaiah that Isaiah was prophesying during that time, and Isaiah had said something that was offensive to Manasseh. Manasseh tried to chase him to kill him. Isaiah hid in a hollow tree trying to escape, and as Manasseh went by, he saw his robe under the, sticking out from the tree bark and had his men saw the tree in half rather than fetch Isaiah out. It's referenced, some would think, in, in Hebrews 11, it says, for their faith some were sawn in two. And people will point to, well, that's the Jewish belief, the Jewish tradition that Manasseh had Isaiah murdered. Whether or not that story is accurate or not, you see that, I, that Manasseh, by what we see in the scriptures, was truly an evil, evil guy. He held on to power. He's willing to sacrifice his sons. He lived in the world of darkness and death. And if I may make a cultural parallel in our world today, he is like Lord Vader, living in the dark arts, living with dark activity, willing to enter into the dark areas of, of, of spirituality, willing to hold on to power at all costs. Skip to verse 9. 
Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before, before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon." Catch the picture there. Manasseh is, is, is doing his own thing. God tries to get his attention through prophets like Isaiah. Manasseh pays no regard. And so God gets his attention by sending Assyria, the, the armies of Assyria in, to capture Manasseh. And it says he's captured with hooks. Picture the cattle hook through his nose being led to Babylon. With shackles of bronze on his arms and feet being led a thousand miles on foot with a nose ring being led with shackles, Manasseh is led to Babylon on a walk that is probably the equivalent of here to Boston. He walks that way over a course of probably at least three months, which probably provides Manasseh a lot of thinking time. Thinking about his father, thinking about the kingdom he inherited, thinking about what he's doing, thinking about what God is ultimately in charge if, if this is happening to me. And he finds in verse 12 and verse 13, he says, And he was in distress, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I want you to capture the full, irrational set of events that happen here. You have Manasseh, who is so evil, he brought idolatry into the, into the kingdom. He then brought idols into Solomon's temple and transformed God's house of worship into a place of absolute idolatry. He sacrificed his sons to a foreign god in child sacrifice. He consulted mediums, demonic activity, spiritists, necromancers, trying to do magic with the dead. And despite how bad he was... He had a moment of humility when his sin was ever before caught before him and he prayed and God was moved. A number of years ago, close to 20 years ago, I was teaching Sunday school at Kishwaukee Bible Church with a four and five-year-old's class. And I remember, we were to, we, I don't remember the story exactly, but I remember talking about how God sometimes works in unexpected ways. And how sometimes when uh, we don't deserve it, God is gracious. And maybe the story was about Jonah, I don't remember. But I remember I said something like, can you imagine what it would be like if you told the prophet to do this and he did that? Would you give that prophet a second chance? I know that if I was God, I would not do that. Instantly, Katie Lewis raises her hand and says, Mr. Hudson... You are not God. <laughs> I'm still not God. But it's interesting to look at the story from God's perspective, to see how evil Manasseh was, how God-forsaken he was. And verse 13, look at it in your Bibles if you have it. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved. He prayed to him, 
and God was moved. You say that with me? He prayed to him, and God was moved. One more time. He prayed to him, and God was moved. One helpful way to read the Bible is, as we go through some of these historical uh, accounts of the Bible is to just ask the question, what does this story teach me about God? I would challenge you, look at your Bible right there in verse 13. And ask yourself, what does this phrase teach you about God? Just stare at it for a moment. He prayed and God was moved. Maybe make a a note to yourself on your paper, but what is it that this verse, this phrase teaches you about God? God did not demand that Manasseh fix anything. He did not demand that he prove that he was really sorry. He didn't say, go make restitution. It simply says that Manasseh prayed and God was moved. Manasseh was someone who was not good enough, yet found that forgiveness was free. It's easy as we approach the Lord's table to think about our own sin. And it's a healthy exercise at some level to to sit back and say, you know what, what have I done this week? And I think one of the takeaways we can take from this passage is it doesn't matter what you did this week. It doesn't matter what you smoked, how much you smoked. It doesn't matter if you drank, how much you drank. It doesn't matter what you watched. It doesn't matter what places you went on the internet that maybe you shouldn't have been. It doesn't matter the arguments that you got into. It doesn't matter the fights, the lust, the greed, uh, the fraud, all the different things that we may be guilty of. In ourself, we can come to the Lord's table and say, you know what, I am not good enough. I know what I did this week, I know my failures. But in those moments, we, can, we approach a God who we learn that when we pray, he is moved. The thief on the cross at, at the Lord's execution was not good enough. He prayed to Jesus, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was moved. Jonah, in the, in the, in the belly of the fish, was not good enough. He couldn't make it right. He couldn't fix it. He was, beyond, he was not able to do anything, but he prayed, and God was moved. David, who murdered Uriah and stole a wife and committed adultery, was not good enough. But the scripture says that he prayed, and God was moved. I think it's safe to put our, we can apply that to us and put our name in in stories like that. Say, you know what, I've had an imperfect week. Chris has had an imperfect week, but when I pray, God is moved. Not because of me, but because God is a gracious God and Jesus took my penalty on the cross. And despite of me, in spite of me, God is moved. You can say, you know what, although Jesse did not have a perfect week, when he prays, God is moved. 
when your own name has an imperfect week, we serve a God that when we pray, he is moved. Let's keep going, verse 14. Afterwards, he built an outer wall for the city of, of David west of Gihon in the valley for the entrance into the Vishgate, and he carried it around Ophel, and he raised it to the very height. He also put commanders of the army in the fortified cities of Judah, and he took away the foreign gods. Catch that, verse 15. And Manasseh took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Manasseh returned to Jerusalem and he did all these good things, but these good things were not a condition of his forgiveness. He was forgiven. God was moved while he was still in the jail, unable to make restitution, unable to fix anything. But as evidence of his his true humility, his true confession, his true agony over his sin, he then does these good things where he restores, uh, tries to restore faith, has his own conversion. He's living out a similar principle to what Jesus says in Mark if anyone would come after me, take up his cross and follow. He's saying, you know what, I'm now full on with God, therefore I need to put these other things aside. I've been confronted with my sin, okay, now I'm going to try to do my best to follow after him. Verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord and the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites of which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Amon his son reigned in his place. On the back of my Jeep in the parking lot, I have a trailer hitch, and on my hitch, I have a Darth Vader. And many people think, everyone thinks, except those in Propel, think that I'm a gigantic Star Wars fan and I love Lord Vader. The truth is, is Darth Vader really reminds me of King Manasseh. And to realize that if God could save Manasseh, and there's an arc at the end of the story where God can save Manasseh and restore him in a literary sense the way Darth Vader was, was redeemed. Manasseh was redeemed. If God can do that, God can do that for me. And he can do it for you. Sometimes our sins are very public. We have public outbursts. We do something in the workplace. Uh, we have an opportunity where our sin is exposed out front. Sometimes our sins are very private, where no one knows but we know. But the cup and the bread remind us that grace is free, that we are not good enough, that grace is free, and we can enter into that fellowship with God, um, illustrated by this. I had a friend in uh, Colorado who was caught in a scandal, and it was a big scandal. A scandal so big he lost his family, he lost his job. He was on the evening news. There he was in handcuffs walking on evening news, complete shame of the community for what he had done. 
he paid his legal dues or he went to jail for a time and when he was done with that he had to move to a different city because uh, he could not live a viable life in a city that knew what a, uh, all the bad he had done. It was after he had paid his debt to society, so to speak, that I met up with him and had coffee in another state. And we talked about the events and we talked about his journey and he says, you know what? He goes, as awful as it was and what I did was wrong, I wouldn't change it. He says, I learned through this that forgiveness of the God's forgiveness in a way that most people will never understand. I've been confronted with my sin. He goes, when I go to church, I don't have to pretend to be good. People know the truth about me. I've been in the paper. But as a result, I know God's forgiveness better than most. We all come from, with, with our weeks and our years, we can reflect. And I hope like Manasseh and like my friend, we can take a moment and look at our sin. And not to beat ourselves up to say, see, I knew I wasn't good enough, therefore I shouldn't even be a church. God is not worthy of me. I just shouldn't. But to see our sin long enough to realize that it's been forgiven. And as we truly embrace our sin, so to speak, not to hold it in treasure, but to realize, no, this was sinful. And against a holy God, I have done something that is treacherous. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave me there. The Lord's table reminds me that Jesus died on the cross because I am not good enough. And you're not good enough. And we can look good here on Sunday mornings and we can, we can keep it up for a while, but we're not good enough. We know the truth about ourselves. God knows the truth about ourselves. And we come here this morning to the, to the bread and, the, and, and the, the juice, the symbol of Jesus, body and blood, because we aren't good enough, but forgiveness is free. If I can invite up those who are going to be serving with us today. As we take the Lord's Supper together, what we will do today is uh, the musicians will come on up. Come, you guys can come on up as well. Uh, the bread will be passed out. If you would like to take uh, part of communion and if you are trusting Jesus for the salvation and forgiveness of your sins, I would encourage you to do so. Whether you're a member here or not, uh, go ahead and and you'll take the bread and then immediately after the the, the trays of the juice will also come, go ahead and take that. And then on your own during the next couple of songs, we'll have a couple of songs here, any time during that that you like. Prayerfully, I would encourage you to to reflect on your salvation and partake of the Lord's Supper, um, to eat the bread, uh, to drink, and then I'll come up at the end uh, and close us. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us of Jesus' words. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we approach the communion table not because we are good enough. We have not earned the right fact, far from it. We are unworthy to, to approach the table. We're unworthy 
to have uh, a sacrifice die for us. But Lord, we rejoice that forgiveness is here, that grace is free, and that we can celebrate that this morning. Father, bring to mind our sins, not to beat us up with them, but to remind us of how great your forgiveness is. In Christ's name, amen.
If you haven't yet uh, partaken, I'd invite you to do so now. Let's pray. Our Father, we are not good enough. Thank you. Thank you we didn't have to be. Thank you for the salvation you give us, for the grace you freely give, the forgiveness you freely give, that we might know you and, and be in relationship with you. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin, not leaving us as you found us, but allowing us a forgiveness we don't deserve. We praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Being New Year's Eve, let's sing All Glory Be to Christ, this familiar New Year's Eve melody together. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain tell me what is your life amidst that vanishes at dawn all glory be to Christ 
Celebrate the turning of a new page to say, you know what, it's a new year. I have a fresh start on so many things. The cross does that for us. It's a new page. Our old self is gone. Our sin is gone. And because of the cross, we get to turn uh, the page. Uh, Go in the forgiveness and the peace and the joy that we have through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.